But God is ipsum esse. God is the sheer act of to be itself. Therefore, God is utterly perfect and personal in his reality. Now, who's the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is a person who shares in the one divine essence. That one divine essence is the unconditioned reality I've just been talking about. Therefore, of course the Holy Spirit is personal as the Son is personal, as the Father is personal. Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm the host, Brandon Vaught, the content director at Word on Fire. Joining us from Santa Barbara is Bishop Robert Barron. Bishop Barron, good to see you. Hey, Brandon. Good to see you, as always. Hey, one of the most exciting new books that we've released just came out a couple weeks ago, and I know it's, it's, it's very special to you, given your connection to the author, yeah. is a book titled St. Catherine of Siena, and it's by Father Paul Murray. Talk a little bit about the new book and your relationship to Father Paul. Yeah, we've been friends for about 20 years now, and Father Paul teaches uh, spirituality at the Angelicum, the great Dominican University in Rome. And I think one of the really uh, leading spiritual writers in the world today. So we were delighted that he was um, you know, willing to contribute to this series of ours. And it's a book on St. Catherine, who is one of his great uh, mentors and heroes. Uh, and it's a really penetrating, interesting study of St. Catherine of Siena. From a spiritual, theological standpoint, Catherine, of course, as a Dominican, was very indebted, not so much in the high academic sense, but she was indebted to uh, St. Thomas Aquinas and his vision of things, of the God-world relationship, of sin and grace, etc. And that comes through. And Father Paul also links her to uh, some other um, interesting figures in the history of thought. So the book, I think, is, uh, is terrific. So yeah, I'm real pleased about that. And this is the first book that we've published through the Word on Fire Institute, which makes yeah. it doubly exciting. It's kind of a more serious look at Catherine. There's footnotes and endnotes, but I don't think it's too scholarly that it would put off, say, the average lay reader. So if you want to learn more about Catherine of Siena, I highly suggest checking it out. You can find it at wordonfireshow.com slash Catherine. Again, the book is titled St. Catherine of Siena, uh, Mystic of Fire, Preacher of Freedom. It's by Father Paul Murray, a great Dominican and one of our fellows of the Word on Fire Institute. So you can find it again at wordonfireshow.com slash Catherine. Well, Bishop, uh, some years back, uh, another book came out. It was by an evangelical preacher named Francis Chan, and it, it sold, I don't know, a million copies, a mega popular book, and it had a very intriguing title. And I don't, I don't want to talk about the book. I want to focus on the title and what it suggests. It was called Forgotten God reversing our tragic neglect of the Holy Spirit. Hmm. And that phrase has always stuck with me, forgotten God, that if we believe in one God in three persons, we talk often about the Father, we pray often to the Son, but in many circles, the Holy Spirit sort of gets short shrift. I mean, do you find that the case in the Catholic Church today, outside of maybe more charismatic circles, uh, circles that invoke and pray often to the Holy Spirit, that by and large, the Holy Spirit seems to sort of be third on the totem pole when it comes to the Trinity. Yeah, there's some truth to it. I think maybe we in the West should take our lumps a little bit on this, because Eastern Christianity for centuries now has been criticizing the West just for that, uh, a kind of neglect of the Holy Spirit. It's probably fair to say that in the theology and spirituality of the Eastern Christian Church, there's a greater stress on the Spirit. Years ago, a colleague of mine used a phrase I've always liked. He said, we are Christocentric, and indeed, that's one of our principles of the Word on Fire Institute. 
we're Christocentric, but we shouldn't be Christomonist. And what he meant was a sort of reduction of everything to the second person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit, in a way, it's funny, Brandon, because the Holy Spirit should be the most available, if you want, of the three persons. Uh, because the Spirit is, if you want, the divine power bringing to bear the Son upon us. He's the one who interprets the Word, the one who applies to individual hearts the power of the cross and resurrection. So in a way, the Spirit is the one that we're most directly in contact with, you might say. Uh, but I think in our theology and spirituality, we've tended a bit to underplay the Spirit. Now, I know you've mentioned a few times that during this coronavirus pandemic, one of the goods that's come out of it, despite all the tragic suffering, yeah. of course, is that a lot of your events have been canceled, a lot of your trips have been canceled, so you've gotten to spend a lot more time at home, and one of the things you've done is significant work on this new book you've been writing on, The Creed, mm -hmm. and I know you just wrapped up the section on the Holy Spirit, so yeah. I, I thought maybe it'd be a good time to ask you, what are the basics that Catholics need to know about the Holy Spirit? Who is the Holy Spirit? Maybe the first thing, and you just implied it there in your question, is who? So we might have a tendency to say, well, what is the Holy Spirit? As though the Holy Spirit is just some sort of impersonal energy or force. The Holy Spirit is a who, as a person. Here's the way to state it classically. The Holy Spirit is the love shared by the Father and the Son. So from all eternity, the Father, you might say the Father, I always love that German phrase, the Urgrund. He's the, he's the fundamental source of the divine life. The Father knows himself. In this great act of self-knowledge, notitia sui, St. Augustine called it, self-knowledge, the Son emerges, if you want. The Son is begotten, we say, of the Father. So the Son is the logos, the word, the interior word by which the Father knows himself. Now, since the Father and Son share everything except paternity and filiation, those are unique to each one, but they share the same divine essence, that means that when the Father looks at the Son, he sees utter perfection. And when the Son, who's endowed with mind and will, etc., looks back at the Father, he sees utter perfection. And so the two of them fall in love with each other. I've, I've always loved our, our friend Fulton Sheen's great line that they, they sigh their love for each other. And that sigh, of course, the Spiritus Sanctus, the the holy breath shared by the Father and Son is the Holy Spirit. And now you see that the brilliance of St. Augustine's image is that you see how this doesn't split God into three. There aren't three gods or three things. Or rather, one God in these three subsistent relations of paternity, filiation, and then we call it technically spiration, which means mutual breathing forth. The Spirit is that third person of the Trinity, the shared love of Father and Son. I think for a lot of Catholics, the Holy Spirit feels like an addendum to the yeah. Father and the Son. And a lot of people wonder, why is the Holy Spirit even necessary? What does the Holy Spirit provide that, say, we don't get from the Father or the Son? Well, maybe let's go back, because I've been doing more high philosophical language. Let's go back to the scriptural source. So we say that the Father sent the Son. How, how far? Well, into our humanity. How far? Well, into our death. How far? 
all the way to the limit of God-forsakenness. The Father sends the Son out. Why? So as to embrace all the world that had run away from God. Right Now, in this great image, the Father and the Son kind of stretch to the limit. What is it that keeps them from snapping apart? Well, it's the Holy Spirit, because it's the love that connects them. The love in which the Son was sent, the love by which the Son accepted His mission, now, watch, as the Son returns to the Father, so we say Christ, risen from the dead, now returns to the Father, what does He bring with Him? In principle, everyone that He's embraced. Therefore, the whole world, in principle, has been included within the Holy Spirit, within the love that connects the Father and the Son. That's why, hardly an addendum, the Holy Spirit, in a way, is the whole operation. Think of this too, Brandon, whenever we do this little gesture, right? And we say, in the name of the Father, we begin with the unoriginate source of divinity. And then, of the Son, this is meant to imitate the downward trajectory of the Son of God. The Son, though He was in the form of God, did not deem equality with God a thing to be grasped, but rather emptied Himself, went all the way down. And then, the Holy Spirit is the gathering of the world into the love that connects the Father and the Son. And that's why the Spirit, hardly an addendum, in some ways, is, is the whole story, the point of the story. That's why we have a spiritual life, because we've been gathered into the love that connects the Father and the Son. I've seen some people, maybe ill-advisedly, compare the Holy Spirit to, say, the Force in Star Wars. Mm -hmm. um, and then here, you know, we've been using analogies that aren't perfect, but analogies yeah. nevertheless that compare the Holy Spirit to love or to the divine breath. But for a lot of people, I think all of these are sort of lifeless energy forms. You know, they're abstract things. But we describe the Holy Spirit as a person. What does it mean to say that the Holy Spirit is the love between the Father and the Son, but that the Holy Spirit is a person? What marks it as a person? We've got to make a couple moves. One is, when we accept that God is the unconditioned source of existence itself, that means that God is um, utterly fulfilled in His being. There's no potentiality in God. God is actus purus, as Thomas Aquinas said. It means like pure actualization, pure energy. Well, that means that there can't be any lack in God. The minute you say, oh, God's like the force in Star Wars, you mean some kind of grand, all-enveloping thing that doesn't really have mind and will and personality. Well, then you've said, ipso facto, conditioned, contingent reality. That's not God. Thomas would have called that, by the way, ens commune, like being in general. But God is ipsum esse. God is the sheer act of to be itself. Therefore, God is utterly perfect and personal in his reality. Now, who's the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is a person who shares in the one divine essence. That one divine essence is the unconditioned reality I've just been talking about. Therefore, of course the Holy Spirit is personal as the Son is personal, as the Father is personal. Um, so none of the three persons of the Trinity should be compared to like a Star Wars force. They're all personal in that sense. Now, maybe we'll get to this. We also use person in a kind of derivative way too when talking about the personhood of the Holy Spirit. But you're getting at this more uh, fundamental sense that in the measure that all three persons share the one divine essence, they can't be less than personal. Well, let's go into that other sense of personhood. Because yeah. again, I think this is troubling to a lot of people. They envision the Trinity as three different persons and 
to them, they yeah. think this means they're like three different people with yeah. unique intellects, unique wills. They're kind of right. going in three different directions. Maybe they're part of the same family, so they share some <laughs> common mission, but they're really three distinct beings, if you will. Right. What do we mean when we use the word personhood vis-a-vis the Trinity? We're getting the deep waters, of course, but uh, you know the famous icon by Rubloff that, that is one of my favorites of it's the three angels visiting Abraham, but it's meant to be a picture of the Trinity as well. And you have these three figures around a table, and they're arranged in such a clever way. I can't go into the details, but, but Rubloff is signaling the different relationships within the Trinity. The trouble is we tend to think of it that way, like, oh, there's the Father, and then there's the Son, and there's the Holy Spirit. These three, as you say, beings around a table. Well, that can't be right, because that's tritheism. That would compromise the divine unity. You can't speak of the unconditioned reality as somehow breaking into three beings, right? So that's one extreme, tritheism. However, we can't go to the other extreme and say that the Trinitarian persons, well, that's just a way of talking about the three modes by which God manifested himself. So in the Old Testament, he's manifested as Father. Then in Jesus, oh, now he's manifested as the Son. And now in the life of the church, he's manifested as the Holy Spirit. That's called modalism or Sabalianism, after its founder, Sabalius. The idea there is that God is one, supremely, but then God can wear three different masks or have have three modes of appearance. Well, to that, the church also said no. So, no to tritheism, no to modalism. And one way, Brandon, to read all of the history of Trinitarian theology is, how do you navigate the narrow space between tritheism and modalism? And the way the church resolved that is with our great Trinitarian theology. And now I'm getting to your question, which is, what do you mean when you say the Father, Son, and Spirit are persons? You mean something very real. So we're not talking about modalism. At the same time, you're not talking about splitting God into three things. You're talking about, I'll use Thomas's language now, you're talking about three subsistent relations that obtain within the unity of God. What do I mean? I mean the Father, this Urgrund, this primordial source of the divine life. As I say, giving rise to the Son. Therefore, the Father has a relation of paternity vis-a-vis the Son. Now, let me correct myself, because I said it wrong. You shouldn't say the Father has a relation of paternity. Rather, the Father is a relation of paternity to the Son. The Son having been begotten by the Father, is a relationship of filiation vis-a-vis the Father. The Holy Spirit, now breathed forth by the Father and the Son, is a relationship of active spiration, that's the Father and Son in relation to the Spirit, and is passive spiration, that's his own relationship vis-a-vis that is the relationship he is vis-a-vis the Father and Son. And see, what I, I'm tripping up. We always do it because our own language is so conditioned by things that have relationships. But when Thomas says the Trinitarian persons are subsistent relations, he's breaking that way of thinking, right? Within the unity of God, there are these three subsisting modes of relationality that we call Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, I love this. How come we call them persons? Because, I mean, let's admit it, when you say three persons, it does sound like Rubloff's icon, right? This person, that person, the third person. How come we call them persons? 
Here's Augustine's answer. So we have something to say when people ask us what they are. <laughs> you see, his point is, well, we call them essences or substances or supposites, or, but, but all those terms are, are problematic. Is person problematic? Mm-hmm. But it's just so we have something to say when people ask us, what are these three things? Well, we'll call them persons, for want of a better term. I love how a, dis a descendant of Augustine, St. Anselm of Canterbury, referred to the three persons as tres nescio quid, which means literally in Latin, three, I don't know what's. <laughs> nescio quid. I, I, I don't know what they are. Because we don't have subsistent relations within our normal range of experience. Right? We have things like you and I are two separate substances who right now are having a relation. We're talking to each other. right? Uh, or I have a relation now to this camera over here. I'm, I'm in front of it, etc. So it's substance with a relation. The Trinitarian persons aren't like that. They are subsistent relations. And see, that's why they don't violate the integrity of the divine unity. Well, let's talk about one of the unique and great joys I know you have as a bishop, and that's to do confirmations. You mm -hmm. do thousands of them every single year. Unfortunately, now with the coronavirus yeah. pandemic, they've been temporarily delayed. Um, but confirmation is often described as the sacrament of the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. It's like the, the one sacrament where the Holy Spirit is especially emphasized. But I know a lot of people think, well, hey, I thought when I'm baptized, I receive the Holy Spirit why do I need confirmation, or what does confirmation do? You've preached often on confirmation yeah. at every confirmation you've been to, so maybe give us a little overview of confirmation, the Holy Spirit, what happens there during this sacrament. Yeah, good. I mean, the Holy Spirit's involved in all the sacraments, necessarily, because the Holy Spirit is that, as I say, by which the, the uh, accomplishment of the Son is applied to our lives. So the Spirit's involved in, in every uh, sacrament. You're quite right in saying baptism. We are given the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Confirmation stirs it up. Confirmation, as the name suggests, confirmare, means to strengthen, right? It strengthens the presence of these gifts of the Spirit in us. So that at this moment, a little later in life, we're able to sort of claim them as our own. So there's a tight link between baptism and confirmation. You know in the Acts of the Apostles, that great scene where they, they, they discover that here's a group that have been baptized, but they haven't yet received the Spirit. And so they say, oh, let's, let's get our heavyweights, let's get John and Peter to come down from Jerusalem, and let's have them you know, address these people, and then through them the Holy Spirit comes upon them. Well, that's the biblical ground for the relation between baptism and confirmation, which is why it's not an absolute necessity, but typically the church brings in uh, the heavyweights. It brings in the bishops to preside over confirmation because they're the successors of Peter and John, right, who presided in, those, in that early uh, uh, ceremony. So I put it that way, Brandon. The confirmation is the confirming and stirring up of the gifts of the Spirit given at baptism. Well, as you say, along with the Holy Spirit comes these gifts that the Holy Spirit brings to every Christian. And I'm reminded of that other colorful episode in the book of Acts where Simon Magus, who's a magician, asks, um, how do I get the Holy Spirit? Can I buy it from <laughs> yeah, you? Right. He offers to, <laughs> to exchange money for the Holy Spirit. Uh, but it leads to a natural question. If the Holy Spirit is so wonderful, we want him to invade our lives, our hearts, and bring with him all these great gifts, how do we receive the Holy Spirit and all these gifts? 
Well, I would say, you know, in a Catholic context, that's why we, we attend and receive the sacraments. The sacraments are the ordinary means by which God gives us the gifts of the Spirit. So don't stay away from the sacraments if you want the gifts of the Spirit. Um, the ordinary means that Christ established is His church and, and the church's sacraments. So it's not a matter of, um, of triviality or indifference that so many Catholics stay away from the sacraments. And why am I not you know, being stirred up by the Holy Spirit? Well, are you going to where the Holy Spirit's on offer? You know, so I think that's how you do it. But you also, Brandon, more generally, you beg for the Holy Spirit. You know, a lot of my prayer, I think of it that way, um, is begging for the Holy Spirit. That's what you do when you pray. I remember years ago, a spiritual teacher said to me, when you pray, you listen in as the Father and Son are speaking about you. Think about that for a second. So we were using all this high philosophical language, but the Father and the Son aren't like just up out there someplace, but they're, they're in us. Right? We talk about the, 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 the indwelling of the Trinity in us. So when I pray, I listen in, in a very conscious, focused way, as the Father and Son speak about me. They, in other words, I'm now in the space of the Holy Spirit, and I'm, I'm listening. Well, in that space, all right, Lord, send your Spirit. Give me your Spirit. Stir up your spirit in me. That's, that's what you ask for when you pray. That's what you listen in to hear when you pray. Can you think, Bishop, of sometime in your life where you've seen the undeniable action or voice of the Holy Spirit, when you've sensed the Holy Spirit in a profound way? Oh, gosh. You know, in a way, Brandon, it's, it's your whole spiritual life is like that. And, and not typically in a spectacular way. But if, what's the Holy Spirit's name? His Spirit is, is love, right? He's the love between the Father and the Son. He's called the vinculum amoris sometimes, which means the chain of love, right? The chain that connects Father and Son. He's also called in Aquinas and, and the great tradition, donum dei. He's the gift of God. Okay, whenever therefore real love breaks out, and you and I have talked about this, Real love is not just you know, having a nice feeling about somebody. It's not just you know, generosity. Love is to will the good of the other. When that breaks out, we say, there, there it is. There's the Holy Spirit. There's the Holy Spirit. When forgiveness is, is clearly evident, that's the Holy Spirit, right? Um, so think of those moments in your life when real love, real forgiveness especially forgiveness of enemies, is on display. That's the unmistakable mark of the Holy Spirit. Uh, you know, one way too, Brandon, when I was doing spiritual direction with people, uh, that's one way to, to do it, is just to say, okay, what was the Spirit up to in your life this past you know, two weeks or past month? Uh, what were the occasions and opportunities for love? When did the Spirit open a path for you to deeper love? Tell me about that. Tell me how you cooperated with it. Tell me how you resisted it. Tell me how you ignored it. Tell me how you, you benefited from it. There's spiritual direction, if you want, in a nutshell. Um, those are all the signs, I think, of the Spirit. Uh, go back to Galatians 5, right? And, and you got the gifts of the Spirit and the signs of the Spirit, uh, one of which is joy. Is when people, that's our friend Chesterton to me, is uh, such a great model of someone filled with the Holy Spirit because it's the joyfulness. And, and I, I sense that. 
in people I consider really holy. That's one of the great marks, is their joyfulness. Well, it's time now for a question from one of our listeners. If you have one, we'd love to hear it. Just send it in via askbishopbaron.com. That's the website you want to go to. And from there, you can record your question on any device. Today, we have one from Franco in New York, and he's asking about how to arrange a personal chapel or a personal devotional area. So here's his question. Greetings, Bishop Barron. My name is Franco, and I live in New York State. Um, drawing some inspiration from your private chapel, I was wondering what type of things or what type of items would belong in a home devotional corner. Hmm. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Hmm. Good. You know, I have a privilege as, as a bishop to have the Blessed Sacrament in my chapel. Now, that's a, that's a rare thing, and the Church doesn't give that permission you know, to anybody just to have the Blessed Sacrament. But shy of that, you know, uh, icons. Are there icons of saints that, that mean a lot to you? Uh, even like a little candle. I, I, I like when you enter into prayer that there's some gesture that you perform that signals to your body and your soul that we're doing something different. And that can be, like, for example, the lighting of a candle in front of an icon. Um, so I, I think the pictures of the saints. I go back to, this is years ago, my uh, uh, thesis director, Michel Corbin, the great uh, Jesuit scholar. And I had just begun work on my doctoral paper. And he said, uh, Robert, you know, you, you, have to, you have to do something. And, and I thought he was going to refer to some book I had to get. And he said, you have to get an icon and put it next to your computer. And uh, I, I've, I did it. In Paris, I've done it to this day. I have an icon next to my computer so that when I write, I'm doing it in a prayerful spirit. So I, I would get get a couple icons of your favorite saints. Um, you can find a relic of a saint, and you can come across those in different ways. Uh, maybe put a relic of a saint up in that corner. But something that signals to your body and your soul that we're doing something different now. A little crucifix or something. And maybe the lighting of the candle. That's a good thing. Well, thanks for the question, Franco, and thanks all of you for listening. A couple of bits of exciting news. First of all, for the last four years, we've been secretly working on an extraordinary new project. It's called the Word on Fire Bible, and we're about to release the first volume of this Bible, which contains the four Gospels. Now, I'm not going to give any more details than that right now. More will be rolling out here in the coming weeks. I'm sure we'll do at least a whole episode or two on this extraordinary project. Um, but for now, visit the website wordonfire.org slash Bible. Wordonfire.org slash Bible. You can enter your email address on there and we'll send you all sorts of updates as the Bible gets ready to roll out. It'll debut in the middle of June, so not too far from here, but uh, you're going to want to see this. You're going to want to be a part of it. Uh, it's truly, I think, one of the most extraordinary initiatives we've ever released at Word on Fire. And second, just as a reminder, check out our new book, St. Catherine of Siena, Mystic of Fire, Preacher of Freedom. It's by the great Dominican poet and theologian, Father Paul Murray, who is a fellow of our Word on Fire Institute. You can find that book, again, at wordonfireshow.com slash Catherine. We have a great special deal running where if you buy the book, you get for free digital access to our St. Catherine of Siena Pivotal Players episode, which you can watch on any device as well. So check it out, wordonfireshow.com slash Catherine. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we'll see you next week on the Word on Fire show.
Thanks so much for watching. If you enjoyed this video, I encourage you to share it and be sure to subscribe to my YouTube channel.